Welcome everyone to our latest NCAA social series. This is episode 39. I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined by Lynn Holtzman, the NCAA Vice President of Women's Basketball, Nina King, who is the current chair of the Women's Basketball Selection Committee, also a Senior Deputy Director of Athletics at Duke. Uh, let's start with uh, some announcements that were made uh, within the past week. Uh, somewhat expected because we've seen that the men have done something similar to get it to the same geographic region. Um, obviously, that's what the women have done. So, Lynn, let me let you sort of first follow up with our news of the day, if you will, just to update everyone as to why the decision was made to keep the women's basketball tournament in the same geographic region with the Final Four remaining in San Antonio. Yeah, that, that effectively is the announcement, Andy, is that um, the Division I Women's Basketball Committee decided to move our championship to one geographic area and are focusing now on exploring specifically that San Antonio region. The reasons for doing that are very similar to what we heard um, and the reasons why the men did it. It's, it's to uh, better, to be better uh, manage the operations associated with the championship as we continue to work and conduct um, championships within the pandemic itself. Logistically, it allows us to have all 64 teams in, in a designated geographic area um, so that we can have a more controlled environment and therefore a more have a better chance to successfully have the championship. So Nina, uh, this clearly made the most sense. We have seen um, here throughout the course of the pandemic um, in athletics, that dealing with different states is not easy. Uh, we've seen that in football, basketball, you name it. Um, different states have different guidelines. Um, the federal government obviously does not have the same guidelines. And so when you guys were looking at this, why was it critical to at least deal with one state and potentially one county's uh, health protocols? Well, I think it's exactly what you said, Andy. I mean, it's, it's dealing with one known entity. Um, and so that we're not kind of running around to 16 different states or counties, cities, and, and trying to understand um, health protocols and, and, and the different um, protocols that are in place so that we can conduct the tournament and be efficient in conducting the tournament um, in, in the one geographic location. So um, we're really excited. I mean, it, it worked out really well that the Final Four was slated to be in San Antonio, and we're excited to work with um, Texas and, and the city of San Antonio and their county um, and their health departments and understanding how we can this off in, in potentially that location. So Lynn, one thing that the men have that the women don't have, which is proximity to the headquarters. Um, you know, having it in Indianapolis or the state of Indiana, obviously I wouldn't say anything's easy. Nothing's easy right now, but it may be a little <laughs> easier uh, because the staff lives there. How many more challenges does this provide uh, for you and your staff that this is in the state of Texas? So you're still going to have to travel to deal with the logistics. Yeah, there's certainly challenges and different challenges associated with it, but they're not insurmountable. And that all of those, as you kind of go through the, that list of things, um, that all contributes even to the point that the committee's at with their decision. Um, being and targeting and exploring officially that San Antonio region, there's several different compelling factors as to why the committee made that decision to target. As you noted, they were already slated to be the women's final four host 
for us in 2021. But in San Antonio, we also have an experienced local organizing committee. We have a local organizing committee and um, what they do, they do year over year in conducting large scale sporting events and other events. They've, they've um, hosted 27 NCAA championships since 1998, I think. And we also have two host institutions that were the host institutions assigned for the women's final four in um, UTSA and University of Incarnate Word that also expressed their desire to be and, and willingness to support this event. And that's through also different types of resources, which includes personnel. So whether it's going to be drawing on not just NCA staff and there's going to be also others within that community that we've already heard that are raising their hand, hand and wanting to um, play a significant role in order for us to efficiently and effectively and safely conduct our championship if it is in that San Antonio region. So Nina, you know, it's one thing to move first and second rounds or regionals uh, that we've seen obviously that, that have had to happen um, over the past year. It's another for a Final Four and to Lynn's point, um, you know, volunteers, organizers, it's not like they just started working on this. This has been going on for years to prepare for an event like that. How much was that factored into not wanting to touch the final four that ultimately, if you had to deal with regionals before that, that's potentially doable, but the final four is sort of a different animal that you'd have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think we were fortunate, as Lynn said, that, that we were slated to be in San Antonio and their local organizing committee is really experienced. And so um, when we started having conversations with them relative to could we pull the whole tournament off in, in that location? Um, and as those conversations are ongoing, I mean, San Antonio was a, a great candidate to be able to, to host this over a, a three week period, bringing 64 teams in. So I'm not sure that we have many concerns in, in terms of um, viability of the area. And, and again, we were fortunate to work, we are fortunate to work with people that we've worked with before on hosting events in that area. So Lynn, another difference I think with the men versus the women obviously versus the women is that um, the first round was slated to be on campus. And so you're not necessarily dealing with that pressure of you know hotel commitments and other financial commitments in a neutral setting. Um, you know, how much does that sort of ease the burden a little bit that you know you can go back to campuses obviously at any time that you're not dealing with such a burden of that financial aspect. Yeah, in there, there's a organizational, there's a resource, there's the personnel finances, like you said, um, overlaying all of this, as we've seen um, both from the men's basketball decisions and what the women's basketball committee has done here, is this notion of us creating the the, the safest environment that we're able to in controlled environment in order for us to conduct the championship. To the earlier point that was made by us targeting a single geographic region that reduces the number of health authorities that we need to work collaboratively work with in order to safely conduct the event. Um, as the committee went, um, even since the fall as they were began and continued to evaluate a variety of contingency plans, um, even early on, it was, it was uh, pretty clear that we were gonna have to deviate from our normal first and second rounds, non-predetermined campus hosted sites, just given the way the pandemic has continued to unfold. So then uh, eventually moving to this as one of the, was one of the contingency options, if you will, and the committee making the decision to go to a more, even more targeted area, um, just seemed it, it was the best decision the committee can make to make sure that we have a successful championship with 64 teams. 
So Nina, to that point, um, how extensive at this juncture do you think you may need to go beyond the San Antonio metro area, you know, whether it extends up to Austin or Dallas, Fort Worth? I mean, right now, as you're sort of factoring all that in, how wide is that region? I mean, that's definitely something now that we have um, centered on looking at one geographic location, that's something that the NCAA staff is taking and running with to determine how many venues do we need, hotel capacities, um, just all of the logistics in, in bringing 64 teams to that area, can we fit in, in what footprint. Um, and so the NCAA staff is, has hit the ground running and trying to determine, um, is that just the city of San Antonio, or, or do we branch out into um, surrounding areas? So Lynn, what's the cooperation with ESPN as the television partner uh, of the tournament in terms of television windows, if you end up having to sort of stack more games, if you opt to be in maybe one more uh, centralized region uh, or greater metropolitan area? Well, ESPN, uh, obviously, um, being the broadcast partner for our Division I Women's Basketball Championship and broadcasting all of the games, um, the discussions also have begun with them just to, um, to ensure that they are working side by side with us and the committee um, to answer questions just as you outlined, is that as you look at this uh, conducting this championship and recognizing that um, the number of actual sites and venues is different than, the, than a normal championship year. Normally with those 16 pre, um, non-predetermined first and second rounds, four regionals, and then your women's final four, you'll get 21 different sites. And then obviously just go into this region, you're going to reduce the number of sites, but um, then how does that work within the typical schedule or does it does some kind of adaptation need to take place given all the additional things that we have to take in consideration with the games which includes cleaning before between games so the gap time between games seemingly is going to be different as well but all that being said espn um, they're an important stakeholder in women's basketball they're a very key partner for us and we were, are working very collaboratively with them and um, in developing uh, some of the different models to be in this region potentially that the committee will then be able to make a decision on. So Nina, you know, one thing that I know has been discussed uh, for both sides um, is sort of once you get to selection Sunday or selection Monday in the, in the women's case, um, you know, what is that time period like before you actually start playing? How long is a potential quarantine? How much testing goes in before you actually start playing? And then once you start playing, you're all in one sort of area, so you don't necessarily need to take, you know, significant days off in between that first weekend and the second weekend. I know not all these logistics and details have been worked out yet, but if you can, and forgive me if you can't, but, you know, how much do you think you're looking at sort of uh, maybe a condensed playing time in conjunction with, you know, some sort of quarantine that obviously modified, you know, would have to be on, uh, on site once people get there and get tested? Yeah. Well, right now, I mean, we're starting from looking at the traditional window, the traditional selection Monday through the national championship um, traditional day. And so we'll work with, again, with um, local health authorities to figure out what is that quarantine period and, and with Dr. Hainline and the medical advisory group um, in terms of what's appropriate in, in quarantining and when we can get, get teams teams and student athletes um, practicing in, in games. Um, and we'll figure out, again, it's, we, we had a bunch of contingency plans to figure out 
where we're going to have the tournament. And now, now that we know that we're going to have it in one location, we're going to work through a bunch of contingency plans to look like to, to look and see what the timeline looks like. So still, as you indicated, a lot of details yet to work out. Um, but we're, we're looking at so many different options at this point. Yeah, Lynn, I, what I think is really cool is you could actually have sort of a combination of what the US Open did and the Olympics. And I say that in that with the US Open that was, in, was held in, uh, in August is it was a modified quarantine. Obviously you can't have world-class athletes sit in their hotel rooms for seven to 10 days and then suddenly play a grand slam. You know, so you would need obviously some form of practice and modified controlled environment, I would think. And then once you get going, kind of like the Olympics, it could be this unbelievable event that's maybe not, everyone's not playing every day, but there's a game every day of some form. And, you know, it would seem like that, you know, those two combined could provide an unbelievable event, something like we've never seen before, where it's all, you know, sort of uh, compacted, but really grabbing everyone's attention. Yeah, you know, as you described, you know, and as as we work through all of these different models, and ultimately the committee makes makes decisions around what the cadence of that and what it looks like, still with the underlying theme of we need to do what what with our COVID medical advisory panel and the local health authorities and everyone the advice and counsel and direction that we have, um, I think that it's a tremendous opportunity not to showcase um, Division One college women's basketball in a different way, but it's also a great opportunity for us as we come out of this, um, this um, crisis, if you will, for the committee to take some time and evaluate, hey, what did we learn about that? What can we um, draw from the experience we just had and look at and, and pull and take it away with us in a way to, to continue to build women's basketball and our championship for the future? So Nina, let's deal on the ground of the regular season. Uh, we got to get there first. Um, and obviously, not every team uh, is going to play the same amount of games. We knew this at the beginning. We, as a group, the three of us talked about this in the offseason. So it's the same thing the men are dealing with that the women are having to deal with because of pauses and cancellations and postponements. Um, as the season now is starting to unfold, and it'll pick up even more, obviously, uh, after the holidays, how is the committee dealing with um, the unbalanced schedules that are certainly going to come uh, in front of you guys when you start reviewing resumes? Sure. I mean, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, resumes are not going to be apples to apples when we sit in the committee room and, and make those selections ultimately. Um, we're going to have to watch a lot of games. I mean, we have before, um, but I think the observable component is going to come into it a lot more um, than it has before. Um, we're, we're encouraging all of our committee members to watch as much as they can, um, especially now while we're having games and, and there are games to, to be seen. So, you know, I, I can't answer what it's going to look like because none of us have been through it before. I think we all are ready for the challenge and understand um, that it's going to be difficult um, to compare teams. But that's the, the beauty of 10 committee members um, watching all of our conferences and all of our teams um, and looking at what data we can when we do get into the selection room in March. So a challenge that we're ready for, for sure. Lynn, I'm curious to hear from your vantage point. Uh, I mean, literally almost every day I'm talking to players and coaches and this is their outlet. This is their sanctuary. Traditional college students, because I've got one of my own, um, you know, haven't been able to do what they enjoy. They may be at college, but they're pretty isolated and doing basically just academics and not able to do a lot of the extracurricular activities. Whereas these student athletes, 
while it is controlled, they are getting this outlet and they are appreciative and they are thankful and they love the fact that they can even have some moments without a mask on. What are you hearing on the ground from women's basketball players and coaches about just navigating through the season? I mean, it's very similar sentiments to what you just described. I think, you know, as a, as a college athlete, as, as an athlete, someone who participates in sport and just the role that I, that, that has typically in your growth and development, your, the social aspect of it, um, an outlet for whatever else may be going on and just the joy of competition. And all of those things I think are, um, are magnified by all the experiences now. And, um, being in a team environment and what that means and um, the teamwork that's associated with it and having that social network. Again, I think that's magnified given the circumstances. Um, you know, the things that I, as I talk to coaches, but also as I look at different things that programs across our country post on social media, not just highlighting the great plays of a game or anything like that, but you, you'll get some insider scenes of locker rooms, um, of, of different activities that our student athletes are, are doing. And um, I said the other day, as I looked at one of those things, and it was a, it was a, a student who, um, who she became, she was eligible to begin, to begin competing. And just the joy, the sheer joy, not just by her, but by her coach and her teammates and everything, it literally gave me chills. And I told one of my colleagues, cause we were texting about it. I said, this is what it's all about. I mean, just having the opportunity to play a sport that you absolutely love at a time of your life that is so important. This is why we do what we do. And, and Nina, if you can comment on that as well. I mean, because I think this ties into the mental health aspect. And um, while it's a major sacrifice, obviously, to be away from your family and friends and uh, the fact that they actually get to do what they've been training, you take that away again. And look, anyone has the opportunity to opt in or opt out and no one's going to judge them or shouldn't if they decide to not play or coach that's fine but for those that do participate it's been my experience in talking to them that it does help their mental health to actually have this outlet what have you found and especially even on your own campus at Duke absolutely I mean I'm in conversation with our, our um, women uh, here at Duke often and they express great gratitude um, for being able to do what they love as Lynn indicated. I mean this is um, what they have grown up doing and it's um, a huge passion and so they're grateful to be on the court and, and that we've created safe environments for them to be able to practice and compete. Um, but hey listen we're on pause at Duke right now um, and our, our kids are devastated. I mean it is it's tough and, and we're in, we've got some in quarantine and um, so now they're sitting in their in their dorm rooms, um, can't do much. Uh, school is over, so it's really just kind of um, trying to keep yourself occupied. Um, and we're entering the holiday season, and and our student athletes are not going home, and so we're doing everything we can. Um, obviously, first and foremost, to to create a safe environment for them, but also one that's comfortable. Um, and and I think ultimately, at the end of the day, they realize it is so that they can play the game that they love, and they're most appreciative. Lynn, last couple quick things. Uh, we always I feel like sometimes we forget about the officials um, keeping this centralized and who knows where we're going to be obviously as a country come March but from the officials perspective how much will this help having the officials in one area as well rather than traveling all around oh obviously I mean the benefits of being in one area and the officials coming in as, a, as the tournament launches and then being there um, 
throughout the entire championship is going to mitigate risk associated with them because typically those officials that are selected and then continue to advance through the championship itself are flying around the country country in order to get to the different um, competition sites and everything. So it does mitigate risk. Fans is the other issue, Nina. Obviously, uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium um, is one of the best places for a men's basketball, a women's basketball game, uh, because the fans are tremendous. No fans right now. Uh, at what point do you think you'd have to make that kind of decision in San Antonio or the greater areas to whether or not fans could be potentially allowed to, uh, to view this championship? Sure. We haven't discussed a drop dead deadline yet, but it, that is something that we're staying in conversation with San Antonio, the local organizing committee and the, and the health officials. I mean, ultimately it's, it's not our call. We're going to do what's in um, the best interests of, of health and safety. And so we'll work with um, San Antonio folks to make sure that, that the right decision is being made relative to fans, which is hard. <laughs> yeah. And Lynn, lastly for you, um, the timetable here, um, what does it look like for the sort of the next key decisions, you know, venues, other cities in the state of Texas? Uh, at what point do you think over the next, whatever, month to six weeks, uh, you think we'll know a little bit more in terms of some of that timetable? Well, with the, the uh, official announcement on Monday of the committee decision to go to one geographic area and exploring that San Antonio region, um, th this next phase does allow us to formally engage with uh, some of the different communities with regard to both practice competition venues, hotels, um, what the needs are and even increased needs are associated with all of that, um, bus transportation, all those, all those factors. Um, with the committee, what, um, what the committee agreed on is that the target decision for this next phase of decisions is at the end of January. So that's what the goal is. Um, and obviously there's a lot of things that can happen between now and then, but um, recognizing that it's important to get some clarity on those issues so we can continue to move forward with the planning and also communicate that to the women's basketball community. Um, that's, those are the, the reasons the committee is targeting the end of January. And the key words here, I think, for everyone will be controlled environment, not bubble, because this will be different than the NBA and the WNBA. You can't bubble a city, uh, obviously. So it'll be controlled environments, how it all and where anyone can go, still to, to be determined, but certainly will be controlled in some form or fashion when we get to that point and the women's basketball NCAA tournament. Um, as always, uh, appreciate both of you. This is informational, educational. And this is just step one in this process of letting everyone know in the sport where we will be come March. March Madness will happen as we predicted in 2021. And that'll wrap up episode 39. And as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series for all our archive social series that we've been doing all the way back since March. A reminder, we will take a brief pause over the holidays and then we will be back the week of January 4th to cover all the issues here at the NCAA. Stay safe, everyone. Happy holidays. I'm Andy Katz. We'll talk again soon.